0: a high-end designer or a lot of money to get a luxe look, be your own interior designer with big design, small budget. Here's your host, Betsy Helmuth. Hi, everybody. It is so good to be back with you again this week. What week it is. It is, even though it's in the 80s here in New York City, feeling like fall, we went apple picking with my daughter's class this morning. So adorable. And even while I'm volunteering at the apple picking extravaganza, I still get people coming up to me with design questions. And you know I love to answer them. That is what I'm all about. And that's why I'm here right now. So I can't wait to dive into your questions. But before I do, let me just tell you a little bit about what I'm working on. So this week at our Westchester storefront, I will be totally totally transforming our windows from the clothesline theme with our before and after pictures, which it was all summer, to now a pumpkin theme with flickering candles and leaf garlands and I might even bring back the hay bales from last year, even though hay turned out to be a hot mess. I was finding hay, well, really up until last week, in little nooks and crannies and the cracks between the floorboards. So hay turned out to be a misstep, but it looks so nice in the windows. I'm always thinking of ways to make the windows look more dynamic, ways to make them look eye-catching. Lately, we've been getting a lot more requests for commercial interior design for small businesses, for salons, for restaurants, for lash studios, and the exciting thing about that is that you think about design in a little bit of a different way. So certainly when you have storefront windows like we do, we have two large, um, and by large I mean about five feet wide and three feet deep, storefront windows that are just begging for some beautiful display because they have windows on three sides. So the pressure is on every season for me to get it right. And a few things that I've noticed are the key when creating a display is to use height. So not only to use height on the floor in terms of not keeping everything low, but instead of having lots of levels, but the other key is to utilize the height from the ceiling. Bringing things down from the top so that they hang and fill in that upper space is also a really important strategy when you want to have visually arresting windows. The other thing that you need is, of course, pops of bright color because anything through a pane of glass is going to get a little muted just by, you know, the effect of being seen through a pane of glass. So you really have to grab people's attention either with bright, festive colors Or with something sparkly and shiny. Something shiny in a window never fails to impress. So sometimes I'll use mirrors. Sometimes I'll use glittery things or metallic objects that really will capture that light. The one issue that I have with using too many mirrors in my storefront windows is that we get a ton of sunlight. So that light then gets reflected back. It could really be problematic for people walking by who will get blinded by a reflection of the sun. So that's something to keep in mind with mirrors in a window is they can work for you and against you. But the other thing I like to keep in mind is using light So I mentioned that I'm going to be using some flickering candles that I got on Amazon for $27 for nine of them. And that will be a nice element. And of course, I won't have them on all day long. I have a little remote and I'll turn them on at night. So they flicker all through the night. And of course, the nighttime is getting earlier and earlier in the day. So soon I'll be turning those on at like 5 o'clock and they'll just go all night long. With their little AA batteries. But in the Christmas season, of course, I'm using twinkling lights. I've got lights on a tree or just decorating the windows. So these kind of things are things that you want to think about if you're decorating a commercial space that has some sort of display element. And lastly, on this topic, before I dive into your questions, when I'm thinking about creating awesome display windows, you always want to be communicating a message to your clients. And having this sort of window on a street, you get a great opportunity to talk directly to potential customers. So I always have some kind of messaging up. Either it's a chalkboard that has something really cutely written in the colors of the window, or it's a little note on my front door that's on a little whiteboard that I have on a string. But I'm always communicating to my clients something that I want them to know about what's new, what I'm currently working on, where I'm currently going. For instance, this morning I was designing in Yorktown Heights, and I love to share that with the people passing by. So I'll pop up a little sign saying, designing in Yorktown Heights. I'll be back in a couple of hours. And people get really excited. They're always wondering where I'm going, what we're doing, and they're stopping in and saying, Betsy, I see you're designing all over the place. So communicating with your clients, it's just an awesome opportunity if you do have that kind of storefront experience. All right, so now I digress. I'll move on to your exciting questions that you've been sending in by the email loads. Let me kick it off with this very interesting question from Stacy. Stacy wrote me this week and she asked, I'm located in the small state of West Virginia and I'm currently in the middle of trying to get my color consulting business off the ground. Our economy is struggling, but I think there's room in the market for strictly color consulting, choosing paint colors and overall palettes for the home. Do you have any advice on how to market it? Our economy does not support a full-time interior designer. Most around here have side gigs, but I think a color consultant could be more financially doable for most individuals. I'm looking to target that Pinterest crazy individual who wants the look but isn't sure how to find the right color. And so you don't think I'm taking a shot in the dark, I have a degree in graphic design and color is my jam. I've always had a knack for it and I love your podcast, Stacy. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for writing in. You know I'm going to have some opinions on this. So the first thing would be to test the market. Now you mentioned that you have a small market, but the exciting thing about working with color is you could go virtual. So test the market. Go to your friends, ask around when you're at a party, and say, is this something you would want? See if there's even demand in the community. Maybe there are some local Facebook groups, like some mommy groups, because it sounds like that Pinterest person might very well be a mommy. And you can write on the group, I'm thinking of opening a color consultant business. What would you want to see? I love that Facebook now has an opportunity for you to ask a little quiz. So you can say, what color experiences would you need help with? Would it be paint? Would it be selecting a palette for your home? And have people check that box on the different Facebook groups, not only for your town, but those specific targeted groups. Like I was saying, that mommy group, that crafting circle. The other thing that you might want to think about is I tell business owners, a lot of people ask me about entrepreneurial advice. So when people are thinking about starting their own business, I ask them to work backwards. So what amount do you need to make to make this new venture worth it for you? What is that figure? Let's just say it was 30000 a year. Let's say you needed to make 30000 a year to make starting your own business a viable opportunity. Then you divide that down by how many clients you think you can really get. Now, the problem with color, especially paint, is that people only paint once every five to ten years. And so you're not going to have repeat clients very often. And that's where the real money comes in. If somebody hires you, they love you, they love your work, they trust you, and they want to hire you again and again and again. Personally, I'm not fully understanding... And correct me if I'm wrong, watchers, listeners, people. Email me, let me know, Betsy at AffordableInteriorDesign.com. But I'm going to keep it real. Is there a market for someone to create a color palette for someone's home that's not paint? Like, I totally get the paint consultations. We have a lot of success with those at Affordable Interior Design. But thinking outside paint, thinking about fabrics, rugs, window treatments... I would feel like if somebody just created a palette for me, I would still be really lost. I would still have to find those exact items that fit within that color palette, in which case I'd still have to hire an interior designer. So I feel like that color consultant is sort of a middleman that's just handing off the work to an interior designer who may not even agree with that. I feel like you're either all paint or all interior design, but this little weird middle nebulous thing... I'm not sure if there's even a home for that out there. Now, prove me wrong, people. Tell me about your favorite color consultant. I want to know. But I just can't think that it's going to have a very high demand. Just color consulting and creating palettes. And so once you've taken that number, as I said, and divided it down by the number of clients, then you have an idea of what your package needs to cost or what your offering needs to cost. And that is what you build your service around. Now, people will ask me, did I do that when I started affordable interior design? Heck no. I did not work strategically like that. I just started and tailored my plans and packages to what people were calling and asking for. People were calling and saying, Betsy, I need this, or Betsy, I wish I had a package that did this. So over 12 years, I have been constantly tweaking, refining, editing my packages. In fact, I'm going to launch a new package next week to meet even more of those customers' needs and eliminate a couple of other packages that have been less interesting lately. But... I would want you to think about that because packages I find as an interior designer can sell themselves. I was just on a podcast this morning, obsessed with design, and basically he kind of talks to design entrepreneurs, be they graphic design or visual artists or interior designers, and I was telling him that it really gets my goat. It really bugs me when interior design firms don't give you a total cost. When they just say, well, it's gonna be 10 hours of design time, each hour is $150, but they don't guarantee a result at the end of that. You're not sure exactly what you're gonna get. So with my packages, I guarantee you what you're going to get. It's just like I likened it to going to Taco Bell, and I order the value meal number three, and I get the hard taco, the soft taco, and the medium drink done. I want interior design services to be hard taco, soft taco drink. So that's what I did. I created packages that people click and buy, and they get this formulaic end result that is Personalized to their tastes, but they know exactly what they're going to get 14 items, an hour call. All the expectations are clear and agreed upon. However, in the arts, that doesn't really work out that way. In other words, we tell our clients we can source six to eight items in an hour. Does it really take me an hour to source six to eight items? Yes and no. Sometimes finding six to eight items takes me 45 minutes. Sometimes finding six to eight items takes me three hours. But it's the average of all that that needs to work out in my favor. And that way it's really understandable for the client and everyone feels enthusiastic about what they get at the end because they all knew just what to expect. So sometimes it takes me less time, and sometimes it takes me more time. But over time, I've been able to summarize these packages in such a way that I can just hand them off with confidence that I'm going to make the money back and the client's going to get strong value. So that's the thing that you'd want to think about with that package. Now that you have the price point, how do you give that strong value? How do you guarantee a deliver of a certain number of services at the end of that experience? So you have a lot to think about, but I am concerned, and it sounds like you are too, in this business model with the amount of clients you have available in West Virginia. A lot of companies are going viral in terms of virtual offerings nowadays. Even we have a virtual package, and certainly it's not the most popular package that we offer, but it is great to be able to reach people all over That being said, a lot of design services are offering virtual packages at a very low rate. Now, the quality is not as good as ours, and certainly clients are calling us and saying, I tried this one, and now I'm scared to try another one because it didn't work out, but That's what you're up against in the virtual market is how low can you go price-wise, which isn't a game we play because we know we have amazing quality. The person who mans our virtual package has been with us for five years, Kelsey. So I know she is a pro inside and out. I know you're going to get more than the value you paid for with our virtual package. And that's another component that I always recommend to entrepreneurs. Under-promise, over-deliver. We surprise our clients with bonus items. We surprise our clients with extra mood boards. I'm always asking myself and my designers, how can we give this client a little more than they expected? That way you're very memorable because there is no better marketing. There is no better marketing than a referral. So, Stacy, I really hope that helped. I hope it didn't scare you too much away from being an entrepreneur. But I wouldn't hesitate to start this as a side gig. That's what I did with design. I was bartending three nights a week when I started interior designing. You don't have to let go of your day job and jump in with both feet. You can try things out until this takes off on its own, which I know if you think strategically, it will. So before we continue to our next segment, let's cut for a commercial break. Then I have even more questions. Do you love this podcast? Do you wish you could learn even more? Well, we have an online class bundle. And if one of those classes sounded intriguing, but maybe you already have my book or some of the other topics are not of interest, you can buy the classes individually at that site as well. Each class is $40. So head over to affordableinteriordesign.com classes to get your bundle or your online class today. So let's get to my next question this week. My next question came from Melissa. Melissa asks me, Betsy, what are the most common layout mistakes that you see? One of the most common layout mistakes that I see is that people place their furniture, primarily I'm discussing seating or beds, that comfortable upholstered furniture, so that it cannot see the main point of access. So the main point of access in any room is either the door where you enter that room or the hallway or walkway where you primarily enter that room. And from your seating, from your sofa, from your bed, I want you to be able to see that main point of access clearly. That's the best feng shui. That's the power position. That's the place in which you feel most alert in the space and feel most comfortable because you can see the primary path from which people are coming and going. The other thing that I see is that people don't consider balance. So for instance, if you decided that you want to put your TV on one wall, which is a small piece with maybe just a small console, and then you've put your large sectional on the other wall, well, this room is really off balance. On one side, you have this hulking upholstered elephant, and on the other side, you have a screen. How do we add some weight to that side with the TV? There are several ways to add weight. One way that we can do it is we could put an armchair next to that TV, something also upholstered and a little bit bulky, so that it adds some visual weight to the wall. Now, for those of you who have taken my online or in-person classes, you know that I don't say weight too much. Do you know what I say? Oh, guys, I hope there's not a, not a filter on this. I say cojones. if I have a sectional on one wall I have to make sure that I give the other wall some cojones so that it can stand up to all that weight on the other side of the room another way to do that especially in the apartments that we work in with this open living dining concept is to make sure that that sofa which is typically the biggest visual element in the room is counterbalanced by the dining table which does not wind up on the same side of the room as the sofa that would mean the two biggest pieces of furniture on the same side and I tried to avoid that and balance the room by putting that larger dining table opposite the sofa. So that's one of the biggest mistakes that I see, Melissa. Let me think if I can think of another one. Another one that really bothers me and that kind of blows my clients' minds is that they really feel attached to the idea that you can't float furniture in the middle of the room. You can't put a sofa in the middle of the room. And that is so wrong, especially in big rooms that need to have multiple functions or multiple zones. You need to float that sofa and use it almost as a pony wall or a low wall to create one space as separate from the space behind it. So... Don't just imagine your furniture hugging the walls, imagine some of those pieces coming into the space and floating on a diagonal or just smack dab in the middle of your room. And you'll find that it makes better use of large rooms and also it helps so that things don't feel so expected. It makes things more visually interesting, especially when you're putting something in the middle of the room on a diagonal be it an armchair, or be it a bookcase that's on a diagonal in the corner. You can really get a lot of wow factor by utilizing the middle of the space or utilizing those diagonals. All right, let's get to my last question for today. My last question came from Allison. She writes, I love the cool modern look I see in many startups. Are there ways to incorporate that into my home? So startups, Allison, I think you're referring to those businesses that are popping up all over, these startup businesses that attract a lot of young techie people who want to work in a different way. So I mentioned that we've been doing a lot of commercial spaces lately, and they're really focusing on company culture how people like to work, where people like to work. They want, especially at startups, they want their staff to stay late. They want them to burn the midnight oil. But if you're expecting your staff to stay over an eight-hour workday, you have to give them different zones, different areas. You have to really make it a comfortable space. In other words, having a lounging area, not just sitting at your desk. That's not sustainable for 12 hours. So, the startup vibe tends to be one that's a little bit loungy, that has those different breakout areas. So, throughout the day, people can migrate from one zone to another while still staying together. Because startups, oftentimes, I find, in fact, I just did a startup in Soho two weeks ago for an automotive company, an automotive online startup. And they really want to be all together. They want to be able to brainstorm. They want to be able to see each other because most of the time they're just going to be coding on their computer or talking on a headset, so when they do get together, they don't want to have to go inside a conference room. They want to just organically say, hey, I had this idea. Hey, I talked to this vendor. Hey, I'm coding this cool thing. I want you to look at it. So the office is a thing of the past, and these large communal tables are really what's happening now. So if you wanted to translate that to your space, I would recommend a large communal dining table, Also, many of these tech startups are wanting a more modern or minimal look. So you'd want to think white lacquer. You'd want to think leather. You'd want to think a couple of bold pops of color. And I mean really bold. Like they're going for primary colors, splashes of yellow against a neutral gray backdrop. And the other thing I've been seeing with our startup clients, because a lot of startups call us, they want that quick, amazing look, but they don't actually know if they're going to flame out. So they don't want to spend a lot of money because this isn't necessarily a business they'll have for 20 years. They want to rock it and sell it and move on. So what they want to do is a lot of them are going for an industrial look because a lot of them are renting out industrial spaces. For instance, the space I was in two weeks ago for that automotive startup, they were in this converted loft space used to be some big factory building, and it's got a lot of exposed pipes. It has concrete floors, flaws and all. It's got um, beams. And so they want to play off of that architecture. They're really inspired by that industrial architecture. So they want to bring in pipes. They want to bring in rustic top tables. They want to bring in that leather that's a little bit distressed. So going for that industrial look is also a very startup thing to do. So guys, I hope you have a wonderful fall week. Enjoy some apples, have a hike, and until next week, happy designing. You've asked for it and we have answered the call. For years, you've been saying, Betsy, Bye.